4: Up next, Out Loud, with Gianni Caldwell, part of the Gingrich 360
5: Network. Derek Chauvin is found guilty in the death of George Floyd. A police officer shoots a black teenager who was trying to stab another black teenager. And supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement continue to say America is systematically racist. Today, we discuss all these topics and more with a Black Lives Matter activist and a former police chief. This is Out Loud with Gianni Caldwell. Welcome back to Out with Giano Caldwell. I've got an important and timely show for you guys this week. My guests are Zelie Amani and Clarence Cox III. Zelie is a community organizer and Black Lives Matter activist who founded the Black Lives Matter Liberation Collective, a group of black students dedicated to transforming higher education. Clarence is the former president of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, a veteran of law enforcement for more than 30 years. He served as the chief of police for Clayton County Public Schools in Georgia. On today's show, Zellie and Clarence and I discuss race and policing in America. Let's go. We know what just happened this past week with the verdict, uh, Derek Chauvin, and I wanted to get the reaction from both of you guys. The jury found the former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, guilty on all counts, and the death of George Floyd. What was your reaction to that?
6: Wow. Um, for myself, um, when I heard the reaction, I, I let out like a deep sigh. And I didn't even know that I was holding my breath, you know, during the whole uh, ordeal. So I think for me, it was something that took me by surprise, but also at the same time didn't give me the same s- sense of satisfaction that I thought it would have
4: well I kind of got the what Zelly's saying as far as, as far as the satisfaction piece but for me I wasn't surprised because I watched the prosecutor um, really dive down and do a really good job meticulously to lay out that evidence and uh, you know I remarked to one of my friends I said you know Ray Charles can see this because it's so obvious and he's blind and dead so if these jurors don't get it we've got a major problem here in our country but you know as ellie just said i don't know if i was as satisfied as i wanted to be because that's just the beginning of a continuation of work to be done i i think that you know uh while keith ellison and and his group did a great job on that it's a broader problem and you know if We can't identify these kinds of officers earlier on. We got, you know, a lot of work to do. And and had we identified his problems and his his, I guess, demeanor and his his culture earlier, George Floyd wouldn't have been murdered and he'd still be here and we'd be living happily ever after.
5: Well, thank you for for that reaction. And I Truly agree. I do think that there is uh, reform that's absolutely necessitous and you have to continue to push the ball forward so we can identify the bad officers. But understanding that we know the overwhelming majority of officers are honorable people who serve on a day to day basis basis to protect us all. Now, there's been some conversation in the press, um, just areas of the press who have said that they believe that jurors made a particular decision because they were concerned about threats of rioting and looting if they didn't make a particular decision. I reject that personally because juries have convicted mobsters, terrorists, uh, gang members, all kinds of folks who would literally target their families for making a decision against them. Did you all think that any of those threats of rioting had any impact on the jury's deliberation and conviction?
4: Personally, I didn't. I think that during the voir dire, process of selection, you could listen to the response from some of those jurors, and you could tell that they were very intelligent people or people that got it. But also, you, if you look back to what I just said about the way the prosecution laid it out, I think the most compelling, I guess, uh, testimony came from one, the chief of police and several um officers from that department, but then the doctor who, you know, laid out the, the, the exam piece and showed that there was no other cause for the death other than the asphyxiation where this guy was on his stomach with a knee on his neck. Um, you know, it, it was no way in the world that they could have come with another um, thing. And, and, and this, in my mind, is an applaud to a breakdown of the thin blue wall that people refer to oftentimes when a police chief of a department and uh, several members of that department can talk about what they have been trained and 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 Derek have been trained the same way, and they talk about the failure of him to do his job, I mean, you know, what else do you need?
6: Zelly, totally agree, especially with your sentiment where there's been historical incidences where jurors are actually threatened with their lives and still make the right decision, um, and we've also seen where. In other incidences in other towns where um, officers were indicted and charged, and there were still threats of rebellions or uprisings in Ferguson or Baltimore, those jurors still chose to, you know, find the, um, in this, the officer um, not guilty. Or in some cases, where it comes to like a grand jury, they, cho- they choose not to indict the officer. So. There's been many, many different cases, right? And when you look at it, only seven officers since 2005 have ever been um, convicted for a lot of these police-involved um, sh- shootings. So it's a very, 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 very small number of officers who have been charged or even indicted and convicted for incidences. And jurists always in those c- c- cases tend to, you know, find the officers guilty, you know, or, or innocent rather.
5: Zelly, I want to ask you this question because there's been a lot of conversation about the Derek Chauvin and and George Floyd, um, the Derek Chauvin trial. Of course, he killed George Floyd. But people have said that this conviction isn't simply about uh, Derek Chauvin. It's a conviction of America as a racist system. And I know there's been members of the Black Lives Matter Matter movement who've, who've echoed those sentiments. Do you believe that the system of policing is a racist system?
6: Yeah, um, personally, I do believe that the the system of policing is a racist system from its origins and, you know, all throughout American history, um, it has been proven to be a, a racist institution. Now, does this necessarily mean that every single um, person that's employed by the police department is someone that is racist. I Don't necessarily believe that, right? But they are working in a a racist institution, right? And the same thing goes for our public education system. I'm an educator. I know the anti-blackness that happens in our education system. Am I gonna say that every single teacher in the education system is racist? No, but I know that they are in a system and unfortunately are perpetuating the anti-blackness and the mass. Um, incarceration uh, of our youth. So when I say that something is, you know, racist, it doesn't mean that those individuals are out there, you know, saying the n-word or have a Ku Klux Klan outfit in their in their closet, but we're saying that they are perpetuating something that is um, um, harming black communities instead of helping them.
5: Now, Chief Cox, uh, you've been in law enforcement for many, many years. You Ran one of the largest police organizations with the executive leadership. So, we're talking police chiefs in Chicago, New York, and many other places. Do you believe that you've been a part of a racist system of policing?
4: Well, what I would say, I would go even further than that, uh, Gianno, I think the criminal justice system has systemic racism components throughout. And much like what Zellie's saying, that does not mean that we're saying every police officer is a racist or has racist practices. I think there's a culture that, I guess, fosters that racism uh, in, in dealing with uh, communities of color. I think that we police and, and unfortunately, I've seen some of my African-American brothers police our own communities differently than we should. Um, you know. And a lot of that is not a police matter. A lot of it's uh, because of our socioeconomic situations. Um, you know, you find a lot of poverty in our neighborhoods. You find a lot of uh, lack of health care and, and other things. And I think until this country gets really serious about addressing those needs, we're going to have this continuation, unfortunately, because when people find that they are somewhat a minority in all aspects of life, they get, you know, less than uh, favorable health care, less than favorable attention, unless there's, you know, uh, an effect on the other side of the tracks, I like to call it. So there's been a drug problem in this country for many, many years. And being that a good bit of my career was in drug law enforcement, I saw in the early 80s with the crack epidemic, and we just fondled it and we called it the war on drugs so now that there is a opioid problem and prescription drugs are being abused it's now a health crisis and it's being policed totally different and when you have these types of things over and over again and brown and black people are the i guess the guinea pigs of that then you have these type of issues. So I would say, yeah, there has been systemic racism throughout. I mean, you look at the minimum mandatory sentences that put a lot of people in jail in the 80s with the crack epidemic. And, you know, you look at Barney Madoff and others who have destroyed, you know, rich or affluent families. And they've got less than, than those type sentences. So, I mean, we could go on and on about the, the, the racism uh, examples in the criminal justice system.
5: Now, of course, there's been instances of racism. We've seen that 100 uh, percent. But you believe it to be systematic in the way that just about every police department is touched. And you know, I'm talking to you, uh, uh, President Cox, every just about every police department that has been touched has uh, has some areas that they need to improve around race it's not just one bad police department or maybe three police officers in a particular department, which we've seen, um, you look at Ferguson, you look at uh, even Minneapolis, you, they've had a number of complaints, thousands of complaints, and there's not been much of anything done until recently when they after George Floyd. So you thinking that this is across the board?
4: I do. And with 18,000 police agencies around the country, there is a immediate need for some standards that would be applicable in every every agency, because you don't know what you're gonna get from New York to South Georgia when it comes to law enforcement, because they're all made up with different policies, different standards, different cultures. Um, You know, for an example, when you talk about uh, racial profiling, you know, just this past week, we had a young rapper in Atlanta who accused the Atlanta Police Department of racial profiling him while traveling through the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. Uh, And it turned out not to be the Atlanta Police Department, but the Clayton County Police Department. So what I'm saying to you is, as long as money is associated with policing, it's going to be those kinds of problems as well, because a lot of agencies can't, don't have the budgets of a New York or LAPD, but they make their money by doing other things, you know, uh, drug interdiction, traffic stops, um, those kinds of things. And you got to think when a lot of these enforcement efforts are conducted, they're actually in the black and brown communities and they get a different set of policing versus, you know, on the other side of the tracks where, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Jones runs a light. We stop and tell her, okay, Mrs. Jones, next time you got to be very careful, but Bobo comes through the light on the other side of the tracks. He's playing his music loud. He asked the officer, why did he stop him? And before you know it, he's got a citation and he's off on his way. So I'm saying, yes, there is a very, very different approach. And, in, 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 you know, President Obama tried to address it in the 21st century policing document when he said that, you know, agencies should have the hiring makeup that reflect the demographics of their community. If you bring a guy into a poverty struck in black community who has never seen an African-American, he's probably not gonna know how to deal with that person and in, in, in know our cultural habits, and therefore it's gonna be a miscommunication at some point. Okay,
5: so we've also seen other elements of black law enforcement officers who might've grown up in the same community. That's use Chicago as an example, in- Inglewood uh, as an example. And they know the cultural habits of the individuals and someone still dies at the hand of the police. Does that make it a racist incident? Does that make it uh, I mean, obviously, it depends on the what actually happened, but you still kind of see the same approaches no matter if the cop is black or white. So is it a matter of um, people talking to officers different, is showing a particular set of respect for officers? As I was talking when I was growing up, you got to respect police officers. Yes, sir. No, sir. What's, what's, the, what's the distinction here?
4: That's no longer applicable with today's culture. And I think, again, that's the culture of the agency and the, what's, what's allowed. OK, so, you know, every chief, if he's honest, will tell you he, he knows, uh, has a good idea of who these problem kids, problem officers are. But at two o'clock in the morning when guys are standing on the corner, Miss Jones is blowing the chief's phone up or writing emails wanting to say, I want this corner cleared or they're breaking in cars, the chief's gonna send that message back downstream and tell you know, his subordinates, I want something done about it. He didn't, at that point, care how it's done. He just wants it cleaned up and he's gonna send that message and how they interpret it could be something totally different. I'm not saying that there are chiefs who are out here instructing these officers to go do rogue things by no means, but I'm saying that if you are worth your salt as an administrator, you kind of know who's on your team and what's going on. If you don't, you know, if you you turn your head and and have a blind eye to it, that's your fault and you should be liable some kind of civically uh, civilly um, if if you don't do something about it, because we should be asking our community what they expect from policing and we should be able to give it to them in the right way. You don't walk into Walmart and they tell you what you want to buy today. You go in there and you buy what you want or what you need. And that's how policing should be, in my mind, uh, in our communities. Because you can't police every community the same, but you can have policies that would be applicable to protect the sanctity of the community. And I think that's where we got to go.
5: Okay. I want to direct my next question to Zellie, and if you would, um, Chief Cox, to, to follow up after that. By now, I'm sure you both seen the video of the white police officer in Columbus, Ohio, who responded to the call about someone armed with a knife. The officer arrived at the scene and shot a black female teenager who was trying to stab another black female teenager. Do you think the police officer acted correctly and saved a life? Or do you think he should have tried something else to de-escalate the situation?
6: Yeah. Right. So I think that's um, <clears throat> a great question. And it's one that a lot of people are having right now, this whole big conflict about uh you know, police violence, if that was an incident of police violence. And I personally would say like, yes, it was an incident of, of police violence. And the way the reason why I say that is I'm an educator. All right. I teach in the classroom. Unfortunately, I have to break up fights sometimes. Sometimes those kids have weapons. Sometimes those kids have, you know, things that can seriously injure someone. And if I say for example, if I lived in a, a, a town or, or a state that allowed teachers to carry guns. And if I pull out a gun to like shoot down a student, everyone will look at me like, like I did something, something wrong. And teachers all across America are pretty much expected to, you know, protect their students even if a student has um, a weapon. And in many instances, people, teachers are able to disarm those individuals. And I think that Instead of us thinking in a way that, you know, the the officer was correct in what they did and that he saved a life, at the same time, he took a life. So was a life really saved in any of those equations? And we need to think about what what ways, if there was possible, that that could have ended differently and think about how can we change the thinking of police officers where instead of thinking that, you know, Firing a lethal weapon is the way to disfuse that situation in that moment. What other ways could that have been handled? All right, and I think when we start having those conversations, we can start to say to ourselves like maybe that situation could have been uh, uh, de-escalated in a much faster way and uh, both of those lives may have been saved. Even if the young woman was stabbed, she could have been stabbed and, and saved but uh, I think the, the the shooting just 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 ultimately just took someone's life that
5: didn't need to be taken So let me ask you this question as a follow-up zelly so if this was your daughter your sister and I'm referring to the the, the young lady who was um, Not behind the knife, but the one who almost became a victim to, to the knifing if she would have successfully cut that young lady's throat and killed her and it was a police officer on the scene who could have stopped the situation would you have rather your sister or your daughter have died just to prevent a shooting in that situation
6: you know like thankfully uh you know i would say that the officer had decent aim right because he he could have shot the people next to him, right? The girl next to her. So we don't know what would have happened, right? So how would I would have felt if I was in that situation and he ended up shooting, not just the girl, but also an innocent bystander. What if the bullet went through someplace else and shot somebody else? Um, So we have to think about like the whole community there that's like literally been traumatized from that incident. And I think about the girl that was even um, saved If we interviewed her, like would she think to herself right now that she would, what would she rather have? Would she rather have that girl alive? I think that she would rather have that girl alive, you know? And if there was any other option, she would hope that uh, officer would have been able to take that one.
5: Do you think that was a a racist cop killing someone in that situation? Because people have been on, on social media saying that it was another instance of a racist police officer murdering a young black person. Do you agree with that assessment? I,
6: I wouldn't necessarily say that they're racist because I don't know what's in their hearts and minds. Right. But when we look at so many different instances of um, individuals who were armed and who were white and who were able to like, leave with their lives, I think that sometimes when we think about racism, it's not necessarily about if that cop ever calls someone an N-word. It's about does he value that humans, that, that other person's life? And I don't think that he valued um, her life to the point where he was willing to do anything, you know, in order to save her life.
5: Chief Cox, did did this officer perform correctly in in your view?
4: So, thank you. And I respectfully, um, you know, know, entertain Zelly's comments, but I I disagree. Um, and, And the thing about this is as I've viewed this over and over, and, and I've listened to various commentaries, and I've even gone to the Chicago website of accountability for policing, and they have a couple of different versions of the video. To sh- I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing two, I'm sorry. I, I've looked at so many shootings lately. I'm sorry, I'm confusing the Chicago with the Columbus. But on the Columbus shooting, I think that was a justified shooting in that when he also got out of the vehicle, he was already giving commands, and that's part of the use of force continuum. And nobody was following the commands that this young man was given. And in this situation, I've heard many folks say, well, why didn't he deploy a taser? I think America is expecting tasers to be the magic one in, in a lot of these instances uh, right now. Uh, tasers and body cameras are the most wanted things from our citizenry. And every agency, first of all, don't have tasers. Every agency don't have body cameras, unfortunately. But this young lady failed to follow any of the commands. And this officer had nothing else in my mind that he could have done in that short length of time that he had. This was a split second decision. And actually, I applaud that officer's uh, response because had he not... um, you know, protected the life of the young lady who was about to be a victim, um, then he would have been criticized for not doing his job and he would have violated his oath of office. One. The other piece to it is just like, you know, Zelie just referred, this guy had some extreme uh, marksmanship capabilities because I know in my mind, as I watched him go down range with those rounds. I'm like, wow, this guy is, is pretty proficient with his firearm. And that's a good professional officer in my mind because that's what we're taught in the academy. We're taught, you know, so many people have said, you know, why did he shoot her in the chest? Why didn't he shoot her in the leg? Why did he, we as a police officer, if you don't shoot in the chest during your qualifications period in training, you're not allowed to carry a firearm. There's no other acceptable uh, points of injury so to speak, with a firearm, other than center mass, we call it, and that's right in the middle of the chest, because that's uh, most likely going to put you down. Um, so in my mind, and based on what I've seen so far, this is a justified shooting, and I don't appreciate um, our our, comp- our country putting all these in one bag and, and, and I think a lot of people because of the tension that's going on with other shootings and there's some bad ones out there and i'll be first to tell you we cannot put this columbus shooting in the same bag as we can put this is not like a laquan mcdonald type shooting in chicago and uh, i'm still looking at the one in north carolina i'm not really sure on that one as as well yet um But, you know, it's unfortunate that we keep having these.
5: We're talking to Zellie Amani and Clarence Cox III, a Black Lives Matter activist and a former police chief. We've got much more with them after a quick break.
0: Hey, everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
1: Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep (laughs) expert. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.
7: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
5: In terms of putting all the shootings in one bag, and we see time and time again when there's a white officer involved and there's a shooting of a, a black person, no matter if they're young, old man, woman, whatever, There is deemed racist. And my concern, especially being someone who comes from a very dangerous area on the south side of Chicago, and having just three years ago, Memorial Day weekend, my younger brother in the car with two of his friends, and two men walked up, shot the car 25 times, he lived, but his best friend died in his arms. So considering the environment that we're in now when it comes to policing in America, if every uh, police-involved shooting with an African-American is deemed racist, what if it, it happened tomorrow where my little brother, that situation that happened three years ago, and a white officer was around the corner, heard the call, and he found out that the, the, the suspects were black and there's a shooting going on that he can possibly save a life, but hell, I don't want to be called a racist, so I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to wait till the bullets fly and they get away, and then maybe I'll get around to get the ambulance. When is it that we begin to have a really honest dialogue about policing in America. We're doing that right now, but we've seen it become so politicized. We've seen with Black Lives Matter, Democrats have gotten involved and they've made it more about their appeal to the black community versus real poli- real policy changes. We saw what Tim Scott did last year when he was trying to pass a police reform bill and he offered Democrats an opportunity, a manager's amendment to put whatever they wanted in the bill And they walked away from the table because they wanted it to be about politics. They wanted to win elections off of it. And it's been my saying, black lives don't matter to Democrats, black votes do. So with that consideration in mind, especially you, Zelie, because you're you're part of the movement, you're an organizer, you run a chapter. What is it we can do to take politics out of these discussions and talk more about policy?
6: Yeah, I don't think that you can um, separate the two, right? Um, I think what Clarence was saying earlier in in the the broadcast was um, really, really phenomenal. Because when we talk about the issues of why we have policing or why our areas are heavily policed in the first place, when you think about the safest communities in in your state, the safest communities, that you know of the most safest communities don't have more police officers right they usually have less police officers what makes a community safer is they have access to more resources they don't have more cops they have more they have better jobs better health care better um better educational system have better quality food um, better uh, recreation services. Those are the things that make communities safer and stronger. So when the urban communities want to be safe, why instead of giving us jobs and better quality education, you give us more police officers, all right? And that that's the disconnect that's going on right there. When we say that in order to fight crime, um, it's not by hiring more police officers. You fight crime by fighting poverty. And we're not doing that. Uh, we're not doing that at all. And instead, by putting more police officers, we're actually increasing the proximity to police officers and uh, the black community which is already strained and creating these in- these interactions which can be violent or as Clarence pointed out can be predatory where these officers are now just pulling certain communities over uh, for various um, infractions and to really 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 get into these conversations is really important because we really need to understand the role of policing in this country and really think about how can we reimagine re- public safety How can we reimagine public safety? So when you hear the cries of defunding the police, it's not about like getting rid of public safety. It's about how can we reimagine public safety? Because domestic violence is happening in our neighborhoods. Child abuse and sexual assault is happening in our neighborhoods. You can hire 700 cops, 800 cops. Domestic violence is still happening. People are still not safe. So how then can we use the little bit of money that we do have to allocate it in other areas that can actually make people safer? And these are the conversations that we really do have to start having. Like, are police always effective doing every single job? Because police do so many different roles that they may not be necessarily be you know necessary in. Right? That if I got into a minor um, car accident, do I really need an armed police officer there at that moment just to take a, a, a report? That officer could be doing something much more you know serious. He could be out you know. Uh, responding to a robbery or a shooting, but right now he's, you know, taking notes or writing a report. Or if I uh, come into my house and has already got broken into, I don't really need an armed police officer there. I I just need someone to take the report. And that doesn't necessarily have to be an officer. So how can we reimagine the roles and the duties of police officers and kind of like break it down and see like where do we need them and where do we not need them and how do we minimize the interactions with with individuals. And that is why we need to have these conversations about politics and policy.
4: To Zellie's point, I agree. Uh, and it's funny you saw, you talk about that. I just co-chaired a, a task force called Reimagining Public Safety, along with my colleague, Dr. Cedric Alexander. We're both past presidents of NOBLE, National Organization of Black Law Enforcement. and 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 you're right, we've got to first define public safety. That's the first piece, because public safety could also be, you know, lead and water in, in, in Michigan uh, because that's a safety issue. Public safety is is a lot of things. And I think what has happened is over a period of time, we've segued from just being the police to being, as you say, uh, you know, the counselors, the mental health coordinators and all of these things. And we, we we don't have the toolbox or the capacity, the bandwidth to perform all of these things. But you know, on, in every community across this country, if you have an emergency, whatever that emergency it is, you dial 911. And when you dial 911, you expect some response. The majority of the time that's a, 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 a law enforcement officer, a police officer. So we've got to first define public safety. What is public safety? And when we talk about defunding. I don't agree with the defunding mechanism, but I do agree that if we have agencies that cannot comply to a certain set of standards, a certain, stand, a certain set of, of goals and, and commissions, then they should not be able to receive money from the federal government for funding. They should not be able to participate in the asset forfeiture program, where if an officer stops a drug dealer with a car full of money, they can no longer seize that money and seize that car and put it into an operational budget. It should go into maybe a federal budget or a state budget because then that gives them an, an incentive to do right. So if we're gonna get this thing right, and you talk, uh, Giano about the politics and the policing, it's gonna be there as long as people continue to have some sort of money. at the at the It's bottom line of, of everything almost is money. And, and I think as long as these folks don't feel the pinch from the money, and it's popular. You know, everybody's out now with a soundbite saying, "You know, we need to do this. We need to do that." There's more practitioners in law enforcement there, and then there is in any other profession. If you think about it, if a doctor botches a surgery, he pays the insurance, go plays golf until they pay it off, and he's back on the operating room tomorrow. If we were to put those same type of standards in law enforcement you have to have a certain certification if you screw up you get put on a list and then you are not able to go from one agency to another we could stop this but this is a growing cancer across the country because if i screw up at this agency and it doesn't make the news and sometimes even if it makes the news i'm able to go get a job somewhere else until somebody figure it out you know so i, I think we've, we've got a long way to go But these kinds of conversations are the healthy conversations because we're sitting here having an adult conversation on how to work this out. The people that are really empowered to do these things are not doing them because nobody wants to lose. It's not about winning and losing. It's about what's best for the American public. These people in our communities demand more. And until we can build trust and legitimacy in our law enforcement agencies, we're not going to get the respect that we used to get. You know, I heard one of you guys say a minute ago, when you were growing up, everybody respected the police and all that. You know, my first call, I knock on the door and the lady says, who is it? I said, police. The lady said, police, police paid and least thought about. I will never forget that because what she said, it stays in my head. Most officers don't make the money that they want to make or should make for the job that they do and nobody respects us and a lot of that is our fault because of some things like what Derek Shevlin just did you know so it's it's not all it, it, everybody has skin in this game and I think until everybody takes a role an active role in trying to correct this and not playing a blame game pointing fingers oh it's no it's you it's, it's you it's you we're not going to solve this we can have conversations all day long
5: Well, Zali, I wanted to follow up uh, on something you mentioned in terms of defunding the police. Now, I've seen on your Twitter, you've mentioned defunding the police on a number of occasions. It's something you clearly believe in. And to be honest, there's been a number of police organizations that have been defunded across the country to the tune of almost nine hundred million dollars in police funding in some of the most major jurisdictions across the country. Now, with that being the case, we saw a 33 percent increase in homicides last year um, for 62 66 of the largest police jurisdictions saw increases in at least one category of violent crime in 2020. And we continue to see crime go up in a number of these areas. Police officers are uh, leaving uh, their positions at alarming rates for a number of police departments. Police departments are being defunded. But who is it? Who is it hurting more? Is it, is it hurting the, the, the officers who decide to just give up the career? Maybe you get a bad officer off the street. Maybe you get a, a good officer off the street. But isn't that making our, our, our communities more vulnerable to violence and crime?
6: Not necessarily. I think that we shouldn't be always conflating about the, the rise in uh, violent crimes at the same time where we see a rise in COVID-19 cases, right? We see a rise in of unemployment in a lot of um, these same urban areas. So a lot of these urban areas, um, some people haven't been to work since the pandemic have, has started. So we see an uh, increase in a lot of these violent crimes and a lot of these situations. So I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, the, the, the rise of violent crime has anything to do with defunding the police departments or, or uh, Police department apathy. I think it's the exact, exact opposite. Going back to defunding the police, right? A lot of people are scared when they hear the the term defunding the police again because they think of it as what is going to happen? Who's going to keep us safe? Where again? Where Clarence was saying is not. About defunding or getting rid of public safety. It's about reimagining public safety. And what we see right now is happening with many of these towns that are defunding the police, they're actually funding other initiatives like anti violence initiatives. We see that anti violence initiatives like violence interrupters have um, significant. Um, Um, improvements in Chicago and the Bronx where they're able to um, use their violence interrupters to reduce retaliations and um, do ceasefires and really work with these at-risk communities to prevent gun violence. These are the types of things that we need to be um, focusing on. One of the things um, I talk about all the time To give an example, when we knock on doors to talk to many community members and ask them what's some of the wrong things that the city needs improvement, they always mention recreation, right? They always mention our kids have nothing to do out here in the streets. There's no football programs no more. There's no basketball programs. There's no recreation centers. And I tell them that the um, city's budget is $200 million and $40 million goes to the police department's salaries. That's almost a quarter million, a quarter percent. But only two million dollars goes to the recreation department, only two million dollars to fund the activities for the youth. And then when people hear that, they say, you know, like, you know, maybe we can like, you know, shift or allocate some money from the police department, which has the largest budget and put it someplace else into the kids. And again, when we look at the demographics of our police department. Majority of our police do not even live in our communities. So you think about that 's forty million dollars that's not going into our urban areas that's forty million dollars going into the suburbs and surrounding towns. So what happens if we actually invest ten million dollars or five million dollars or even forty million dollars into people who actually live here and who actually need the money and I think with those types of thinking is how we are able to drastically improve. Our, our neighborhoods when we think about money and who we are investing into.
5: Now, you mentioned the COVID-19, the rise in the COVID-19 cases, and I'm, I'm assuming that you're saying that because of COVID-19, a lot of people were laid off their jobs. Is that right?
6: Oh, most definitely. A lot of people uh, were the laid off their jobs or wasn't able to to work. And then we also see people, um, you know, suffering from depression and turning to drugs. So there's a lot of reasons for um, this COVID-19 uh, rise with um, violence as well. And it's very sad to see, but I think it's not impossible to be. And it has to be not through more policing, but how can we invest in other alternatives that um, keep people safe?
5: But if we take into account the fact that when COVID-19 happened, the unemployment rate did go up, of course, But there was a lot of government programs in which people in the bottom rung actually ended up making more money from unemployment programs than they did in their normal day to day jobs. So could that really be the reason for the rise in violent crime or right after we saw like when you think about the rioting and looting under behind George Floyd, that wasn't because of COVID-19 people were rioting and looting. People in the Black Lives Matter movement in Chicago specifically said that it was reparations for black people going into black neighborhoods, uh, smashing those stores and stealing things out of that. Is that really the reason COVID-19 is really the reason why a lot of these crimes took place?
6: I think that COVID-19 was a reason why a lot of crimes in general. And when I say COVID-19, I don't mean like COVID-19, the exact virus is the reason why, but the conditions and the the hardships that COVID-19 caused. cause for a lot of our communities can be contributed to a lot of the rising crimes.
5: Chief Cox?
4: So most major cities right now, Gianno, as you said, a spike in the uptick of crime. But I think to to kind of address what Zelia's saying about the defunding and, and putting money in recreation, I don't t- uh, necessarily agree with the way you're talking about it, but I do agree that there, instead of defunding, I would like to see reallocation some some kind of way of some of the funding, in that rather than trying to put a civilian in a police officer's capacity um, to put them in harm's way, you know, I'd like to maybe see uh, funding for some mental health counselors that are sworn, so they can carry a dual dual role. You know, you have a police officer that's specifically trained in mental health that could respond to some of these calls. I speak with sheriffs from across the country on a regular basis who share with me that the majority of their population are mental health uh, patients. And during the Reagan administration, Gianna, you may remember that most of those major health, uh, mental health facilities were shut down. And so now there's no real place to put them, so to speak, to seek any treatment. And now they're being warehoused in uh, um, jails across this country. So I don't want to see any money taken away, but I'd like to see money maybe added or reallocated. Okay, so as we talk about the recreation uh, issues with the young folks, um, a lot of major cities have police athletic leagues where young kids are able to participate in organize intermarial sports, and it's kind of uh, led by that police agency. I think that's a plus plus because a lot of kids, the the images that they have of law enforcement is a negative image, and most of it comes from TV, and the other comes from the crazy things that they see uh, officers do. But you know, I know when I ran a school resource program, some of the greatest uh, interactions with the young people came came from my school resource officers because they were in the schools having those interactions with those young folk and they were providing counseling so to speak not formal counseling but the relationships and the dialogues that they created also created something that carried on i can remember uh, uh, several occasions where i had a interaction with a young person and later on it meant something to them and to this day, I have young folk come up to me all the time, hey, Chief, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, you know, proud that they've got a job or proud that they got in some college, you know, that they didn't think they could get into. Um, so I think we could do both. I think we can um, reallocate some funding and put it in the right place. And And the only way we're going to do this, again, is we've got to have a commission and, and the only commission or possibility of a commission on law enforcement or public safety right now that's being offered is this George Floyd um, uh, uh, law that they're trying to pass uh, right now that nobody's really moving on. And I, I think, guys, it is that we talk about removing funding. Most cop, uh I mean, most agencies are, are so strapped right now. They don't have the funding to uh, form uh, the duties that they're prescribed to do right now. So until we, you know, this country has way too many police departments as it is, but until we can get it all under one umbrella, so to speak, and get the same standards across the board, same type policies, those kind of things, I'll keep preaching that, uh, we're going to have these issues.
5: So consistency and uniformity is what you're saying across the board nationally is what's necessitous in order to improve policing in the country. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Back in a sec. the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation received about $90 million in corporate donations last year from various corporations after the death of George Floyd. There's been a number of chapters, uh, Michael Brown Sr., for example, requested $20 million from... The, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which I don't believe they've received. There's been people like uh, Samir Rice, Tamir Rice's mother, who, of course, um, her son died. I think he was uh, 10 or 11 years old. He was shot by a police officer. He had a toy gun on a playground and they just pulled up and shot him. There's been a number of other people who I've criticized people like Tim, uh, Tamika Mowry um, and others for using Black deaths to advance uh, their profit structure, if you will. And these are Things that the people have stated in reporting and on social media. There's been a lot of folks who, who said that the organization, the head of the organization, has disenfranchised a lot of the local chapters. You run a local chapter. Have you seen any money from the from the foundation, from the the the, the head of your your group?
6: Right. Um, so I'm part of Black Lives Matter um, Patterson, and um, I would say maybe uh, hmm. A couple months ago, um, a group of Black Lives Matter chapters called Black Lives Matter 10 had released a statement um, initially talking about some of these issues. Once they found out that uh, like 90 million dollars was or 900. I forgot how much money It was, it was 90 you know, million. It was 90 million. It was, it was a lot of money. Right? And um, it caused a lot of problems because ever since the, the George Floyd, even before George Floyd, uh, many chapters were trying to get more transparency and accountability. Um, from Black Lives Matter Global, all right? Um, And there's a lot of issues around that and all a lot of the chapters really wanted was some type of accountability and some type of support. That a lot of chapters um, were doing fantastic work in their communities, but they knew that they could do even more if they had financial support from Black Lives Matter Global. So a lot of people were very upset that um, the global network was sitting on this much money and wasn't distributing it to um, the chapters so that they can support uh, the communities. Um, I personally stand in solidarity with Tamir Mothers Rice and um, Mike Brown Sr. and all the other families that um, feel slotted by um, Black Lives Matter Global. I really do think that um, Black Lives Matter um, Global Network needs to uh, really address these concerns. and really needs to address these grievances to really support these families families that they say they are supporting. Because when you saying you're um, fighting for Black Lives Matter, it's just not about fighting for the people who um, were killed by police, but it's also about fighting for the Black lives that are still here. You need to be able to be supporting um, these Black families that are still grieving. You need to be also supporting to the best ability um, Black communities nationwide and supporting your, your local chapters. So I hope that with all this criticism that um, the Black Lives Matter Global will turn a new leaf and you know, um, change some of their processes or support um, these families that have been asking for monetary support.
5: Now, we know some of the Black Lives Matter co-founders have described themselves as trained Marxists. Is the Black Lives Matter movement a trained? Is it a Marxist movement?
6: I wouldn't say that the Black Lives Matter movement is um, a Marxist movement at all. I, I would definitely say that there's many people within um, Black Lives Matter. Um, the movement who are potentially Marxist, and there's also people who are, you know, just just have no label for themselves. They just want to see, you know, a change in America. Um, I personally don't think that, you know, Marxism is necessarily like a negative word. It's just um, a person who uh, had a strong critique of capitalism and really made a lot of people understand what capitalism was, and that is a hierarchy. It's, a, it's, it's like an upside down triangle. There's people on the top, and many of us are gonna be on the bottom. And for many of us, being on the bottom is mostly black and brown people. So for a lot of Marxists, it means that we don't want to live in a society where um, there's only one option or two options, either stay on the bottom or go to the top. And meaning that there's not a lot of room on the top in the first place. And there'll never be a lot of room at the top. Just like as you were a kid, we all had our dreams of being in the NBA or NFL, and our teachers had to tell us like, yo. There's not a chance you're going to be in the NFL or the NBA. No matter how good you are, there's only a certain amount of people who will ever make it into the NBA. And that's unfortunately how it is when it comes to being rich or wealthy. We all like to think that we could all have the chance to be billionaires and millionaires, but the reality is not. And we need to be able to change that system so that everyone has access to the same resources and has the ability to live a fruitful
5: life. So talking about Marxism, the Black Lives Matter organization deleted a page saying disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure is one of its core principles. Now we're talking about Black Lives Matter here. We know that about 70 percent of black babies are born out of wedlock and the collapse of the black family has divested our community. So, how is destroying the black family supposed to have black, help black people?
6: I think it's mostly about when we talk about white supremacy, it's the whole idea that uh the nuclear family is the the type of um, household that should be um, adhered to, and anything else is like demonized, right? And that is something that you know, I don't necessarily agree with, you know, And when I say that is when we look back in our own history, whether it's pre. You know, child slavery, we live in mostly extended families. There was nothing wrong with having an extended family. But now, for some reason, it's like frowned upon. And I think that when we talk about that, it's about um, not always saying that having a nuclear family is the goal, but being able to say, like, all right, we welcome all types of families. You know, as long as a strong family and a strong, healthy family, then it shouldn't be denied. We need to be able to have strong families. And if it is a nuclear family, great. You know, if it's extended
5: family, you live with grandma,
6: you live with, you, you know, great grandma. Great.
5: That, that, that's not the stated purpose of Marxism, though. Like they, they, it, it, I feel as though the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, there's a difference between a movement and an organization, certainly. And we see what's going on in the organization. You just mentioned it yourself, how they're collecting all these millions of dollars. They're not necessarily distributing to the traptors, which you all are saying that you do really good work. It should be conversations with law enforcement daily talking about policy initiatives, etc. We're not necessarily seeing that. They're keeping the money seemingly for themselves and maybe selectively pouring it into different organizations. So this is something that obviously needs to change uh, with you guys. And how could you be associated with a global organization like that is not necessarily caring about black lives if you will because they're not pouring in the money that they they've collectively received from corporations to enhance the lives of black people. Black folks aren't seeing that money.
6: I agree like black people aren't seeing those those funds chapters aren't seeing those funds but it's going to be up to myself and other leaders of various chapters to hold on the leadership accountable to make sure that From now on, individuals and communities need to be supported with any um, money that is being distributed to our global network. And that's a part of the fight. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to um, fight internally as well. And that doesn't necessarily have to always be a negative thing.
5: Okay. And My my last question to you on this front. Do you believe that members of the Democratic Party and white liberals specifically are trying to co-opt your movement for their own purposes, political and otherwise?
6: Oh, of course. (laughs) I definitely do agree that, you know, um, there's always been instances where Democrats, you know, Democratic Party or Democrat leadership wants to co-opt, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement because it is a popular movement and it has a base of black people. So to align themselves, they think that they can, you know, align themselves with black voters as well. and I frown upon that and I don't agree with that. I don't think that we should uh, align ourselves with the Democratic Party at all, that we should be independent, that we should you know, fight for what we fight for. If the Democratic Party agrees with what we're doing, then great. If the Republican Party agrees with some of the things that we're doing, great. Whoever agrees with what we're doing and work, wants to work for our same goals, that's good. But we shouldn't align ourselves with um, the Democratic Party or any party um, to take advantage of us or just use us for, for votes and not give us the things that we need.
5: So in other words, black lives, no matter the Democrats, black votes do. (laughs) Definitely. All right. So if if I can get you just your final thoughts, will race relations get worse or better over the next few years? Chief Cox, what are your, what are are your thoughts?
4: Well, I'm prayerful and hopeful that they will get better in the next uh, several years. And it's all uh, kind of depending on the way uh, President Biden leads this country. Um, we lost a lot of ground in my mind with the last administration and a lot of the rhetoric that came out of uh, the White House. And I think that uh, now is an opportunity in the next four years, hopefully, and actually the next two years, because we know we do have no idea what's going to happen in the midterm elections. Um, that we're led in the right way and people learn to love each other again. I mean, it's it's simple for me. I think right now. Our biggest issue is we don't communicate uh, effectively and we're relying on guns to do our communicating for us and there's no real push to, you know, I guess uh, do something about the the guns on the streets. So um, you know, we've got a long road ahead of us and I'm certainly for gun ownership. I'm just for responsible gun ownership and right now I'm seeing way too many homicides and way too many black on black killings in communities across this country. And uh, until we can kind of rope that up, rope that in, um, I just I'm just proud for every day and every night that we learn to love each other again and respect each other again, because there's a lot of lack of respect. And over the past four years, I think I've encountered some conversations with my brothers on Of another race that I probably wouldn't have done before because things sometimes people become more emboldened and decided that they Would you know make challenges that they would not have more normally made, you know, so yes All right zelly
6: Yeah, I definitely agree with um clarence. Um, I do think that we may have some rough spots For a while before we get to like a a brighter tomorrow um, I do have hope especially with the youth, Um, they've been watching, they've been learning, they've seen what was wrong and they have ideas of how to make things going forward. I'm also hopeful because with this conversation with Clarence kind of shows like, maybe like five or 10 years ago, um, a lot of police departments wouldn't have been open to the idea of, you know, allocating money towards um, um, other initiatives to keep communities safe. But now it's like, you know, if there's other initiatives to keep communities safe, then, it's a no-brainer now for um, us to fund. So by continuing to have these conversations and continue to have these rough conversations, even if you disagree, is is key to moving forward. And I'm hopeful because all of us want to be loved, all of us wants to be accepted, all of us want to um, live free. It's all a matter of how do we come together and create this system, create this world where that could be possible.
5: I want to thank Zelia Mani and Clarence Cox III again for a great interview. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions for me, please email me at outloud at Gingrich360 and I'll try to answer them in our future episodes. And please sign up for my monthly newsletter at Gingrich360.com outloud. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and parlor at Gianno Caldwell. If you're interested in learning more about my story, please pick up a copy of my best-selling book titled Taken for Granted, How Conservatism Can Win Back the American Liberalism Failed. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher Aaron Klingman, and executive producers, Debbie Myers, and speaker, New Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 Network.
0: Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
2: For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points.
3: Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air.
2: Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.
1: Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health.